Welcome to National Capital Bible Church for our second session today. And as I did in our previous session, um, some of you will notice a little bit of a change in what we're doing. Some of you may think, is this Communion Sunday with all the children in here? But no, what I have decided to do is to try to bring the children back into the congregation for our song service because I believe it's important for them to hear, as I said in the first service, those great hymns of the faith because that's what we are trying to do. We're trying to teach through singing doctrinal principles. And so that's one of the best times that we can uh, also teach the children um, some of these, these great truths. And they are recorded and found uh, in our hymns. And so uh, it was a policy uh, before to have the children with us when we began church and then they would, uh, when uh, singing was concluded and the second service is when the, um, which would also include the offering, then they would depart to their Sunday school classes. And I know that that puts maybe a little bit more pressure on some of the teachers um, because I'm taking some of their time at the beginning uh, but hopefully um, you will continue to do the magnificent job you've always done, uh, even under just grueling uh, management pressure. Uh, so the other important thing about the second service is it's important for our, our children to learn the, uh, the principle of grace giving. And so we also take the time at the beginning of the second service uh, for that opportunity. And it establishes, hopefully, uh, a habit, but also an inclination uh, to give and uh, to understand why we give and why it's important to give. And those are, you know, so so much of what we learned as children was learned by example. I would like to tell you that everything my father and mother told me locked in. Well, there may be a couple things that weren't. But I learned much by example, and thank, I'm thankful for uh, the good examples that I had. You know, there's always a few bad examples here and there. I never picked any of those up, but the good examples that uh, our parents set for us. And so this is one of those times when I think uh, it's important for us to know that. Um, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf never withers, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable uh, promise for us. We also know as we take the time now for that spiritual preparation of private time with the Lord. It's a time for confession of sins. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we always take just a few seconds of closing our eyes and bowing our heads for that spiritual preparation. We also know that at this time for our offering that Paul tells us that each one of us should give just as we determine in our own hearts, not uh, reluctantly or under compulsion, 
for the Lord loves a grace-oriented, a willing giver. So let's take a few seconds for spiritual preparation and then the offering. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you have blessed us, that we have this opportunity to reciprocate to you in love. Because, Father, as we've often said, you could supply financial support in many other ways, but you choose to do it through us so that we might be blessed because of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 4. How talked about Psalm 104. He just missed it by 100 Psalms uh, this morning. You may turn to Psalm 104. Uh, What I'm going to do is, again, for just a minute or two, talk about Veterans Day. So let me go down to our special screen here, honoring all who served. This is a, a poster that was uh, created by uh, Department of Defense, I believe, or the Veterans, uh, Vet- VA, uh, Department of uh, Veterans Affairs. And they have one every year. And in the middle of your bulletin that you have, you can see, I walked off with yours. Now. You can see some of the other posters that were there. Uh, and it's important, again, for us to remember our history. Um, Those who forget history are, number one, either doomed to repeat it or they are doomed to make serious mistakes that cause them to lose their freedom and their national heritage. And so it's important for us to always remember this history. Um, One of the things that I emphasize, and I think it's important to emphasize, so I'll do it again, is that in our, our special bulletin uh, on the first page, it talks about um, those who have served. Memorial Day is specifically tailored for those who have given their lives in defense of this nation, those in the military who have given their lives in defense of this nation. But Veterans Day is for all who have served in the military uh, since the founding of our nation. And it's important for us to always remember those individuals Uh, their service, and to honor them, not just remember them, but to honor them. And I think over the past few years, uh, there has been more of a sense of that. I know many people will say to those who have served, thank you for your service, or for those who are serving, thank you for your service. Um, And sometimes, maybe for those who are serving, it's um, uh, they're embarrassed or they're they're not certain that that's um, appropriate, but it is. It is very appropriate, and we should be thankful for those who uh, wear the uniform of our nation and those who have worn the uniform of our nation. And I ask uh, all the members of the congregation who had served uh, at the beginning of the last service to please stand. And so I'm going to do that again, and I would like to ask you to stand. And I'd like to particularly also recognize Trent Dyer, who's with us today. We've been praying for him. He's on active duty in the Army and uh, recovering from a, uh, what he would probably call a minor injury. For anybody else, it would have been death-defying, but uh, let's all stand. And Trent, welcome back.
we will continue to pray for you. On the back of your bulletin, your special bulletin, we could have, there are many um, speeches, presentations that we could have used, but I think this one focuses our attention on Veterans Day very well. And again, I would like to thank uh, Scott Craig and Kathy Haley for this bulletin. <clears throat> one of the things <clears throat> excuse me, that I mentioned is that what we would like to do is at least once a month focus on a historical event that not only is important to us uh, as a congregation and, and as Americans and as individuals, but uh, need to be taught to our children. And so that's one of the reasons why these bulletins are uh, produced because I can stand up here and, and teach and talk to you and show you the slides, but we want you to have something that you can take home as parents and sit down with their children and go over this. So that is my at least my desire. Otherwise, these uh, important principles, national principles, are going to slip from our corporate memory and they'll be lost. On the back page, <clears throat> Kobe Dunn, on Veterans Day on November 9, 2007, gave this address. Across this great nation, across this great country, and throughout the world, Americans will pause this Sunday, how appropriate, to honor our brave fighting men and women who for more than 230 years have underwritten our freedom by their duty, honor, and selfless sacrifice, self, selfless service. We recognize that all our veterans have given something of themselves to this country, and some have given all, laying down their lives to defend the freedoms we hold so dear. This evening, as we reflect on the blessings of our liberty, we ask our Heavenly Father that we may be faithful stewards of the freedom we have been granted. Let us never forget that we cannot rightfully celebrate the joy of our freedom without remembering the great price paid for that freedom. We stagger at the eternal debt we owe to the untold number of American veterans who chose to set aside their personal ambitions and dreams to assure the well-being of our great nation. We the living are indeed the beneficiaries of those who made tremendous sacrifices for the advancement and surety of our liberty. May we always be humbly grateful to those brave men, to those brave patriots who suffered and sacrificed for the glory of God and for the freedom of all Americans. For those soldiers who have stood guard in peacetime and to those who have seen the terror, the horror and inhumanity of combat and to those who paid the ultimate sacrifice let it be said that our soldiers have been there for America defending the Constitution of the United States. To all our veterans, we have a simple yet heartfelt message. Thank you. Thank you for your unwavering service in peacetime and war here in this nation and throughout the world. And that's absolutely marvelous from the standpoint that he recognizes God's role in our freedom, the freedom of this nation. And so 
With that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 4. And I'm not going to talk more about Veterans Day now, but I'm going to turn my attention on this nation and uh, what I think happened this this past week. But let me address Psalm 4 first. Psalm 4, the entire psalm as a matter of fact, Psalm 4 beginning at verse 1. This is a psalm, Psalm 4, that's written by David, and while not found in the text or anywhere else in the Word of God, it's believed that Psalm 4 and Psalm 3, because of the, um, the sense of the two psalms together, that they probably were written very close together. Matter of fact, one may have been written right after the other one. And you'll notice in Psalm 3 that Psalm 3 says, the Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. And so this was a time of great pressure in David's life. Um, not just pressure because uh, he was under military attack or there was an insurgency within the kingdom, but because it was his son and he was almost debilitated because it was his son. You know, there are those who, when attacked, can fight, you know, uh, without, relenting, without relenting until maybe the last dying gasp. And then there's other times when they recognize who it is that is attacking them that they just give up. They give up hope and say, et tu, Brute, and cover themselves with their their cloaks because they can't conceive of resisting or fighting against a loved one, someone who they believe to is loyal. I think we see that in one of the movies. I think it's, uh, I'm not real good at remembering all these movies, but in... uh, now I can't remember anything about the movie. <laughs> it's the movie that, uh, yeah, sounds like, that's right, that involved uh, Robert the Bruce. Braveheart. And remember, there's one scene there when our hero... Wallace, okay, William Wallace, thank you. This is going to be interactive this morning. Uh, William Wallace was the, uh, uh, the the Scot was the yeah was the Scot, and fighting England, fighting the Brits, and actually England is better, and yeah. There are people here who've got it memorized. <laughs> we can get them up here and we can reenact this. <laughs> but remember, uh, 
Wallace is a fearsome warrior until at the end of one of the battles he realizes that it's Robert the Bruce who was part of the enemy force and he just almost gives up and that was precisely what was happening to David his son Absalom his beloved son he couldn't love him anymore he loved him more than his own life and when Absalom is the one who is taking the kingdom from him he's almost immobilized but there's somebody in the kingdom who's not and that's Joab Joab we need to do a study on Joab sometime that marvelous enigma of an individual who literally carried David often and other times was uh, was not he did not serve the king well but here we have Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 and so we believe that this is David writing during a time of great pressure and it's an it's an interesting psalm because uh, Hebrew particularly Hebrew poetry is always a little difficult and the translators need to get the sense of what the author is saying they say wasn't that true with everything well it is true but in poetry uh, very often the author will use uh, different words to express uh, a concept or a thought that we would normally say well why didn't he just use this word that's the normal word so let's begin here in Psalm 4. Psalm 4, to the chief musician or the music director, we could say, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David, just one of many. Hear me when I call, O God, my righteousness. <clears throat> and literally from the Hebrew, it's when I call, answer me. This is a plea from David. When I call, answer me my righteous God in other words what he's saying is that God is righteous and he's righteous to answer every now and then when Moses or other uh, heroes of the Bible are interacting with God <clears throat> it's as if they're demanding that God do something and we might say <clears throat> well that's inappropriate but no they're demanding on the basis of God's character and His promise. And if God has made a promise, then the person to whom He has promised knows God is going to provide. And it's the Lord provide. You've promised you'll provide. You've promised safety. You've promised security. Provide. And that's what we see here. It's a righteous call. And so he's saying, when I call, answer, because you are my God, and you are a righteous God, and you've told me you will answer, and you will provide. And the Lord is not offended by that. He is, yes, you believe the promise that I gave you. I made a promise, and you believed it. So much so that when you pray, when you ask, you believe I'm going to answer and that's just marvelous it's wonderful so when I call answer me my righteous God or my God of righteousness the second line 
You have relieved me in my distress. Not bad, but what it really says is, let me get the first line here first. Here, uh, when I call, answer me, my righteous God. When in a tight situation, you enlarge. And the word here that I'm translating for tight, distress is actually the word, is the word that means restrained, narrow, tight. We would say, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I'm in a real tight situation. And that's what this word means. And the rest, the next Hebrew word says, you have enlarged it. You have enlarged the area. And it's, it's, it's wonderful because the person is cramped, tight, under pressure. And the Lord relieves the pressure. The Lord opens the area. Here we had no options. And the Lord creates options. He enlarges the area. And so that's what it says. You have relieved me in my distress. But it means you have led me to open spaces, to opportunities. You've relieved the pressure. And then it says, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Shema, hear. Hear my prayer. Verse 2. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? That's not bad. That's pretty good. And then in the next line, there is in the, the how long is implied. So how long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? You know, I have blessed you, I have given to you, and you have been unfaithful. You have thrown it away. You have not glory you have not glorified me. So then how long will you love worthlessness? And that's my King James Version. But the word worthless here means something that's has no purpose. We might say that you're living your life without really a true purpose for God. How long will you love worthlessness? Um, something that's empty, something that's vain. And I think we also have the how long implied in the second part. And you could say, and seek falsehood, but how long will you seek falsehood? A lie, deception. We have been deceived. We are believing the lie, the falsehood, and we're throwing away God's glory. And I think that's part of what this nation is doing. Verse 3, But no, Yahweh, realize, may be another word here, understand, that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly, and the word for set apart is not the normal word we would expect here for sanctified, but it means has divided, has separated. There's a separation of those who are glorifying him and are, in fact, godly. Distinguishing them from those who are not. The Lord will hear, will shema when I call to him. So, but realize that the Lord has divided for himself him who is godly. Set them apart. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. 
Now this verse is also quoted by Paul in the New Testament in Ephesians. But here in Psalm 4, it has a different meaning than what you might anticipate because the word here for angry means to tremble. It means to be fearful. It means to shake. And a good translation, and I think some of the translations have it, is tremble. And it's talking about being emotionally upset. And in the context, this is David. David is under attack. His son would kill him if he could, if he had the opportunity. He's been chased from Jerusalem, chased out of the tribe, tribal area of Judah. And he is in the north country, across the Jordan, in the east side of the Jordan. And he has seen many of his forces um, betray him and go over to Absalom's side. So, David isn't angry now. He is emotionally distraught with what's going on. He's struggling to get a handle, we would say, on his emotions, his mentality, being able to think properly and correctly in this particular situation. And here is a, uh, a military man who is uh, remarkable in his mental attitude. But the word here is uh, to tremble, to shake, and it's in the imperative. Tremble, shake, and do not sin. Yes, you might be frightened. You might be anxious. There may be anxieties, and you might even be fearful, but you shouldn't sin. Why? Because you can trust in the Lord. The Lord is the one in whom we place our trust. Meditate. Uh, the word here for meditate means to actually say something. And so here is the picture of mentally saying something. And it teaches us that when we're meditating or when we're pondering something, we're saying it. And sometimes we need to say it. You know, like a Bible verse. You may be thinking the Bible verse, but very often you're saying it. You're repeating it. And so, word meditates, fine. But it actually is saying within your heart on your bed and be still, be silent. So, pondering what you have in your heart, the doctrine that is there. Five, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. We actually have two words here for sacrifice. Sacrifice the sacrifices of righteousness. So, make a righteous sacrifice, a proper sacrifice here, confession of sins. And put your trust in the Lord. Verse 6. There are many who say, and it's actually a participle, saying, who are saying, continuing, who will show us any good? The word tov here, good translation, good. But compassion, grace. Who will show us anything that's pleasant? And again, this is David who has been expelled from uh, his palace, from the capital city, uh, out of the tribe of Judah. And who is going to befriend us? Who's going to show us anything gracious? Who's going to have compassion on us? Lord, lift up 
the blessing of your countenance upon us. The word light there is fine. Uh, it's the idea of blessing. Uh, lift up the light. You know, light is often used in the Old and the New Testament for the, the pleasure of God. And, of course, we have countenance here, his face. It's the word for face. Uh, lift up the light of your countenance, your face, your presence upon us. And so here we have the request for the Lord to bless him. Um, supply his needs. To be in his presence means blessing, protection, and provision. Verse 7. You have put, or you have placed, or set, and this is a, a wonderful image, that we often think that um, happiness, joy, comes from the circumstances around us. But this verse says, no, it comes from God. And how does it come from God? He places it. He sets it in our hearts. He puts it there. And it comes from His Word. By word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against you, that I might not be angry, that I might not be fearful, worried, and anxious. So, you have put, you have placed, you have set gladness, simcha, in my heart. Tranquility, contentment, joy, we could call this. Uh, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. All right. Now we have a comparative here as we start the second line, and you say, oh my goodness, what's a comparative? Well, the first line is being compared to the second line. So we need to change the translation just a little bit. It says, you have made me happier than. You have made me happier than. You've put gladness in my heart. You have made my heart happier than when their grain and wine increased or during a bountiful harvest. So the, the principle he's saying is that people who are successful, people who have had an abundant harvest, they're happy, they're joyful, particularly in an agricultural economy. But he says here, even more than that kind of prosperity. You have placed happiness in my heart. Why? Because of who and what you are and what I believe. More so than even having a bountiful harvest. And, of course, we can apply that to uh, our own personal success. Um, what would cause me to be happy? Well, you know, maybe a particular, um, if you're working in sales, um, a real estate agent. You know, if the market would open up again and be able to make sales, or maybe if you're in the military, promotions, or uh, getting the assignments you, that you desire, or maybe, you know, maybe a, a new car. I don't know, whatever. But it's something that would make you happy, and you simply need to pr plug in here that God can make you happy. He will place happiness in your heart more than anything, more than the abundance of what you could have otherwise. And then it says in verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. And the emphasis here is in peace. That's our first phrase. In peace is emphasized. And you say, well, isn't it emphasized as it is? I will lie down. Uh, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. Well, it is. But the author said in peace. That's 
what's emphasized. That's what's important here. I will be at peace. There will be tranquility. So in peace, together, I will lie down and sleep. I can sleep. Why? Because I'm in peace. I have safety and security. And David, where is he? Well, he's out in sort of the badlands, we might call it. And he's lying down not in a secure place. Not in uh, a place that he could say was secure. So, this is a prayer that he says, we'll just lay down out here and there will be peace in my heart, tranquility, knowing that God is taking care of the situation. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. It says, for you, Lord, alone. You, Lord, alone. Cause me to be safe and secure. So there are a lot of things that we anticipate. There's a lot of things that we believe might make us safe, might make us secure. But what what really does? It's the Lord. It's the Lord who provides the safety, the security, the sure knowledge that He loves us more than we love ourselves. And He's taking care of us and providing for us. And it's that's important for us to remember not only in our personal lives, when we might have a loved one who is ill, cancer, or um, you know, a parent or, or someone who is dying. You say, you know, I love them so much. God loves them more than you do. And God's plan is better for them than the plan that you think will benefit them. And God was taking care of David, and God is taking care of us all the time no matter what's happening, because nothing happens in our lives that God has not either directed or allowed to happen. And if it's allowed to happen, it's for a purpose. And so we simply need to come to grips with those those things. And let me talk here just briefly about what happened this week. And give you my thoughts. I'm, I'm sure you've had thoughts from many, many, many people. But uh, I would like to at least extend my thoughts and base them on what I believe are biblical principles. <clears throat> I think many people this week were greatly disappointed in the outcome of the election. And I think I can sympathize with you because you believe, and I, I think it is true, uh, I don't think you're mistaken, that our nation is certainly undergoing a very severe change, and I think it's a change that's not for the better. On the other hand, there's a great many Americans who were very happy over the election, and they believe that America is now on the right course or a better course, and that the change is for the best. And there are millions and millions of people who believe that. I think one of the greatest factors underlying this election is the nation's movement away from our spiritual heritage and God. And while there may be some who would deny it, there was, I do not believe, any denying the assault on our spiritual heritage during these last four years. It's been remarkable. 
And I've said it in the past, and I'm here to say it again, that when a nation drifts from dependence on God, there is a need for a sense of security from another source. And the other source for many people in America today is government. We replace a capital G with a small g because we're no longer trusting in God for our provision and our protection and our welfare. And when we stop doing that, we lose the sense of security that we have. And so we seek a sense of security. And where do we go? We go to government. And I think that's what we've done in this nation. For many, government is the answer to almost every problem in life. And generally, it's at the expense of the family. And the family is the very foundation of society. But government, in its provision, ends up destroying the family. And we have never had such an attack on the family, whether intentionally or unintentionally. But the American family is in deep decline. Our nation was originally founded on limited government and maximum freedom to the individual. But today our federal government is huge and we are sinking under a financial debt that is too enormous for us even to imagine. I doubt that any of us can comprehend the magnitude of $16 trillion of debt. I can't. You know, we've all of us have, may have seen different examples of how, how many that is. Sixteen trillion. And counting. Faster than we can count. Our president ran on a platform of more government, more government taking care of people, and of course, all the social pr- programs must be financed with more taxation. So that's the direction we're headed. And if you believe that, yes, I think that's necessary. I think the government needs to do more. Then we are going to see the continued expansion of government. And it's unwieldy right now. Just a quick thought. We just had a hurricane. And when the president and the governors got together, they said, we really need to get the relief effort here in a hurry. We need to cut through the red tape. Well, why is the red tape there? Why do we have to do something supernatural almost now in order to get what we need to those who are in need? Well, it's because we have such a huge bureaucracy. And if you're cutting through the bureaucracy, it's there on a day-to-day basis. And it's a free admission that government is part of the problem. And by the way, even though government can provide relief, where does it get anything that it provides? It has to get it from the people. And so we really are much better when the provision comes from many of the non-government organizations, the charitable organizations that are locally or found
statewide. But anyhow, more taxation is government taking the property of its citizens to accomplish government leaders' desires. And I don't want to get into a, a long list here of examples, but we have a nation that is no longer self-reliant, no longer producing young people and individuals who are self-reliant. I can take care of myself. We now start from the cradle to the grave with government, and I think we had an advertisement. I think the name of the girl was Judith, and from start to finish, it was all what the government can do for her, not what she would be able to do for herself because of freedom and liberty. We are no longer a self-reliant nation, which in America translated into a fervent trust in God to care for the individual and his family. But we are a nation that is government-reliant, one of the many forms of socialism. It just gobbles you up as an individual. We have studied 1 Samuel 8 and seen the biblical warning that God gave Israel regarding placing their faith, placing their trust, their future, their reliance and their hope in a king. And for us, it's government. For us, it's government. 1 Samuel 8. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. It's the Lord telling Israel, you want a king? This is what a king means. And he is going to rob you blind. So our king is the government. God said it was a form of servanthood. Government growing larger and larger and larger is a form of servanthood. Biblical principle. Biblical principle. America is choosing servanthood instead of freedom. And we cannot replace God with government and, to su and expect to survive as a nation. Now you can apply that principle to... Uh, different uh, legislation, top, you know, whatever topic or subject you want. But limited government is what was originally designed by God. And for those that say, well, that's really different. Well, yes, there, there, is, there were differences and there are differences. But God's original design was for the tribes to be the ones that took care of themselves. And God would take care of the tribes. They would come together when they needed to come together. And that's much like our original Constitution that gives as much freedom as possible to the states so that really the only things that need to be done, bare minimum of things that need to be done, are done at the federal level. Otherwise, it's done at the state level where individuals have an opportunity to vote on it and have an impact. Not, and the way things happen now in our government, for the most part, has happened by political appointees, not even by elected officials. It's interesting that Edward Gibbon, in his classic work, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, lists several con contributing factors to the overthrow of Rome. Why wasn't Rome able to defend themselves when the Goths and the Huns came to get them. And these are the things he cited. There were three of them. He said, first of all, the rampant immorality that led to the disruption of the family. That the family was almost destroyed. 
So the first thing, the rampant immorality that led to the disruption of the family with the resultant loss of stability in the home and society. Society was just destroyed. Secondly, the Roman preoccupation with sports, circuses, and games. The way they devoted their whole time to the pursuit of those things. To the pursuit of recreation. So the emphasis was no longer on you know, the work that needed to be done, taking care of yourselves. Instead, it's all play. Thirdly, the third contributing reason was dependence on the state for support rather than working so that they had time to devote to leisure and pleasure. And those are the three things that he cites here. And I think that we have a nation uh, find ourselves in that same situation very similar we have a nation of people who are lost in the cosmic system of Satan's ideology we have a large majority of the people who are either confused ignorant of what's happening or completely deluded by political talk and that's not saying they're stupid it's just that they're they're really unaware of what's happening and why it's happening and to a certain extent think we're heading in the right direction but they cannot see that it isn't the right direction. <clears throat> Have we come to the point where such a large majority can vote benefits to themselves so that we are irretrievably going down as a nation? We just vote benefits to ourselves instead of saying... There was a time in America where you, you couldn't... It was hard to give somebody charity. They wouldn't take a handout. I remember my grandmother telling me stories about my grandfather, never knew him, died young. But many times she would say, then when they were out of work, she said, your grandfather wouldn't take a handout. He would, we just managed to get by. We just ate more vegetables, which always was tough on me, but oh no, more vegetables. We just ate more vegetables, things out of the garden, whatever it was until he was able to get another job. But today that's not the case. Today we expect the handout. We are not reliant. We are not self-reliant. I don't know if we have reached that point that's irretrievable, but I do know that God has promises, such as found in Psalm 4 that we've just covered, that God will take care of us. In other places, such as Psalm 33:12, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chooses for his inheritance. And while this is a promise to Israel, it has application to us as well, because we have a rich spiritual heritage. We have a nation that was built on biblical principles. And so, a large part of our problem, therefore, is a spiritual solution needs a spiritual solution. But it's not sufficient to simply identify the problem and solution. There must be a desire to be part of the solution, not remain part of the problem. And so, we have many Christians today who are willing to do almost nothing with regard to participation in the solution. And we've watched the decline of our nation, and I think it's time for us to stop watching 
and truly become active in evangelism and others around us who need spiritual attention. We need to use the Bible doctrine that we have been storing for many, many, many years. Begin to use it so that we can begin to be part of the solution, not part of the problem who are just watching and observing this happen. Thomas Paine said, These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldiers and the sunshine patriots will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. Heaven knows how to put a proper price upon its goods, and it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. And it is, and it has to be maintained. It's fleeting. Liberty is never ever secure. It must be defended by those who truly cherish it. And we need to train and teach others who may not have that same understanding. George Washington said, we should never despair. Our situation before has been unpromising and has changed for the better. So I trust it will again. If new difficulties arise, we must only put forth new exertions and proportion our efforts to the exigencies of the time. He wrote that in 1777. We need to have an impact. And you say, well, aren't Christians supposed to have an impact? Yes, they are. But it really does take the effort and the drive of the local church to make that happen. And I think that we understand that there is such a thing as a pivot. And we've studied this in the past, and we see it in Genesis 18. Every now and then somebody says, well, we have these doctrines, but do we always have um, Scripture for them? Well, Genesis 18 talks about Abraham talking to the Lord. And he is appealing, appealing for Sodom. And he said, Lord, would you spare Sodom? for 50 believers. And the Lord said yes. So the number was 50 for Sodom. Of course, Abram knew that there weren't 50 believers down there. And he whittled it all the way down to 10. And the Lord said finally, yes, 10. So 10 was a number that would, that would spare them. Well, what's the number for America? I don't know. I don't know what that number is. But I know that if we believe that we are in decline, then we must not have attained that number. And there are, are many of you, or some, I shouldn't say many, that might tire of me talking about Child Evangelism Fellowship and our Good News Clubs. But I can tell you that those Good News Clubs in the public school are having an impact. Let me read you something that received. I have not gotten the author's permission for this. 
But it came from a school called Old Bridge Elementary. Rejoice with me. Yesterday, the Old Bridge Club did this lesson, the lesson that was taught. And for the first time, our leader gave an invitation after the story and said, meet Mrs. Bush in the back if you want to talk about salvation. I had five very eager little girls immediately come back and practically beg me to tell them how they could trust Christ as their Savior. All accepted Christ as their Savior and prayed with me. They were so happy and excited. God reaffirmed to me that this is why we do what we do, day after day, week after week. I feel so privileged to work with you all, referring to those who are involved in the Good News Club, each week. Now, this does not mean, I mean, first of all, I would love if everybody joined the Good News Club and we could go into more schools. But this doesn't mean you have to join a Good News Club. Like the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Philippians and to the Colossians and to other churches and said, thank you for partnering with me. Partnering with me. How did they partner? Did they go? Did they walk with Paul? Did they teach? No, they didn't. They supported them with prayer and they gave financially and they supported in other ways that they could. And I would like to tell you that I think if we would just scatter out in the community and started to witness, yes, we would probably have results. But I don't know where you're going to grab five souls and place them in eternity. And if I'm not mistaken, we had two last week. total of seven in two weeks. I don't know what the number for America is. But in some places... That number is rising. And the same kind of invitations are being given at Patrick Henry and also at Claremont. Young children are not resistant. They are eager to believe. Pray for our good news clubs. Pray that many more will believe. And the other day I heard something that I thought was a problem. Theron now has to call all the, the parents of all the kids who don't show up at school, at the elementary school. And I thought, well, that's not right. But you know what that does for Theron? It puts him in touch with the parents. And we didn't always have that kind of touch before. Theron spends most of his time now during the club while others are teaching and taking care of the kids. He's calling parents to find out where the child is, tell the child where they should be. Well, I think that's something we probably need to do in our other clubs. Talk to the parents. We can tell the parents, your child believed in the Lord Jesus Christ today. This is what we studied, and your child participated. And we can have that kind of interaction, and then maybe invite them to church. And the family will come to church. We're still learning. I'm still learning. But we can be better at this. And we can have an impact in this nation that's beyond what we are doing now. Pray for us. I pray for your personal evangelism. The nation does not need to continue on this downward spiral. We can recover spiritually, but it takes an effort. Not the summer soldiers, those who are seasonally maybe involved, 
but those who are truly dedicated, the steeper the climb, the greater the reward. And we just need to understand that. In closing, Veterans Day. Veterans Day again began in France where the poppies grow now grow and grew then on Flanders Field and in memory of the original day let me uh, just read to you John McRae's May 1915 poem in Flanders Field in Flanders Field the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly scarce heard amid the guns below we are the dead short days ago we lived felt dawn saw sunsets glow loved and were loved and now we lie in Flanders Field take up our quarrel with the foe to you from falling hands we throw the torch be yours to hold it high if ye break faith with us who die we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders field let us not sit and watch let us take the torch the torch has been thrown to this generation are we going to be the generation that sold it into tyranny and slavery for the next generation. Let's take the torch. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to understand what you have for us in our lives. You have a plan. You have a purpose. And many of us have been growing for years, learning, absorbing the Word of God. For what purpose? For us to have invisible impact? too invisible it appears for this nation right now or possibly to be true prayer warriors or maybe support in giving or in some other way but we need to be part of this spiritual battle or we will lose this nation and it will be this nation who has seen the wonderful blessings you have given us slowly eroded and slowly taken from us we know there's a spiritual solution. Help us to be dedicated to that spiritual solution and not to just be watchers, to be participants. Because someday you will tell us, well done, now good and faithful servant. Let us be in that group. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.